Today's sermon is titled, To Be Born From Above, and I'm using um, the Nicodemus story in John um, chapter 3, verses 1 to 21. So you'd like to um, turn to John 3, and um, I'll talk about that very, very important um, story. I was in the Philippines last year doing a, a series of workshops for plant health quarantine inspectors. And in one particular hotel seminar room where I was holding the workshop, there was a, a flipboard with this uh, verse, John 3, 3, on it. Um, and this flipboard stayed in, in the front of the seminar room for the whole week while I was giving these um, this EU-sponsored workshop to these quarantine inspectors. And this flipboard, no one moved it, and it just, you know, just stayed there in the front of the hall for everyone to see for the whole week. So I had plenty of time to reflect over John 3.3 3, um, in Davao City um, in the Philippines. And, um, and it sprung to my mind um, a few months ago when Tom asked me to, to give another um, sermon about my life and um, how this, um, to be saved or to be born again, how that impacted on my life. And I grew up um, in Zimbabwe, in, in southern Africa, and I attended from a very young age a offshoot of the Church of England. It was called the Church of England South Africa um, denomination. Um, my mother was a Christian, my father wasn't. But me and my sister were brought up at Sunday school and going into um, the teenage years. And when I was about 13, just before my 14th birthday actually, um, I went down to South Africa on a, on a camp, on a youth camp, um, just outside Johannesburg. And the preacher the evangelist for that week to, to these youngsters, from, not only from our church in Zimbabwe, but the same denomination um, from different churches in South Africa, was um, Ken Tehoven. And Ken Tehoven um, was an evangelist in the UK in the 1960s and 1970s. And this was the era, uh, I, obviously I wasn't living in the UK uh, during those era, but you, you, you'll remember the mods and the rockers. And, and he, um, I think he worked for Youth for Christ, and he witnessed to people that are living in caves on the south coast, if I'm right. Um, I'm not very familiar, but you, you may, um, there was a um, community of people that lived in caves, and he, he had his mission during, during this time to those people. And he was talking over the week, uh, the few days that we were having this youth camp, about these people and how um, some of them you know, turned to salvation from you know, having absolutely nothing. And during one of his talks, um, he, he gave the, the call saying, if anyone of you wants to um, repent and receive Christ as your savior, to do it. And I, I did that, I repented. And immediately I, I felt the spirit, I was filled with the spirit, um, something I could never forget. And it's never happened to me, um, obviously, ever since. But I was filled with the spirit and I remember walking out into the garden. It was a lovely location in, in the mountains. And just um, my ears were just ringing. Um, you know, um, when I said I could hear, hear angels, that's, that's what my, my, my head was for. So it was, it was really incredible, you know, um, giving my life to the Lord. And this is um, where Jesus explains to um, Nicodemus what this new birth is all about. So I'll, I'll read um, that passage, John 3, starting at verse 1. There's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who has come down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the servant servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world, that men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes into the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, and they have been done in God. So in this passage, one of the best known in the New Testament, um, not only for John 3.16, but also um, the story of Nicodemus, Jesus had a personal encounter with this man. Nicodemus was one of the most powerful and influential men in all of Israel during that time period. Some people suggested that he came at night because he was ashamed to try and hide what he was doing. But I think he, became, he came to Jesus at night because A, he was a, a very busy man, and he also knew that Jesus was a very busy man um, during the day. And also, I think he wanted a special time with Jesus, not to be surrounded by crowds, but just come um, late in the evening when all the crowds have dispersed and just spend one-to-one time because he was really searching um, who this man Jesus was. So what was it that could have drawn Nicodemus to Jesus that night? It could have been in the events of John chapter 2, 13 to 25. So in the previous chapter... Um, Jesus drove out the money changers from the temple and proclaimed the fact of his own death and resurrection. The Bible tells us that many of the people believed in him because of his miracles in verse 23. However, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew that for many, their faith was superficial. It was based on the miracles and not on genuine love for him. No doubt Nicodemus saw what Jesus did at the temple, 
No doubt Nicodemus heard what Jesus said when confronted at the temple. What he saw and what he heard created a hunger in his soul to know more about this man, Jesus. Now you notice that when Nicodemus came to Jesus, he came humbly and was very complimentary to Jesus. He came with serious questions. Um, but I, I'm very sure he wasn't quite expecting the answer that Jesus told him in verse 3. You must be born again. Surely Nicodemus must have thought this was a mistake. So before we go into the significance of verse 3, let's find out a bit more about the man Nicodemus himself. First of all, he was a very rich man. Um, tradition tells us that Nicodemus was one of the three richest men in Jerusalem. However, what we have does not change what we are. You can have plenty of money, but it does not change the fact that you are still a sinner in need of a savior. Your money can buy you things in this world, but it can absolutely buy you nothing in heaven. Nicodemus was a respectable man. When he walked down the streets in Jerusalem, everyone knew who he was. He was held in great esteem by all who knew him and saw him. However, he was, after all, a ruler in Israel. Still, what we achieve does not change what we are. It is good to be respected and to have a good name among men, but that will not provide you a place in heaven. Nicodemus was a religious man. He was a Pharisee. He kept the law. He was morally pure to a degree that you and I cannot imagine. Even, even Jesus recognized the religious efforts of these men in Matthew 5, 20, when he said, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He paid his tithes. He did everything the law said to do. He kept the written law and the traditions of the elders. Still, what we do does not change who we are. In, in spite of the outward um, attempts at righteousness, Nicodemus was a religious man in need of a redeemer. It's good to live clean and holy lives, but that will not save your soul. Your religious activities will not do the job either. And this is where a lot of well-meaning men, people, um, get confused. They think they can be good enough or do enough. It'll guarantee them access to heaven. But nothing could be farther from the truth. Salvation can only come through a new birth. Why is this? Because no matter what you have, what you do, or who you are, you are still a sinner. Nothing you have or can do can change what you are. A sinner in need of a savior. And this is why a new birth is not an option. It's a divine must. If you want to spend eternity with God, you must be born again. So returning back to John chapter 3, looking at verses 4 to 8, um, these verses explain the mystery of the new birth. When Jesus told Nicodemus he had to be born again, Nicodemus could not grasp how this could be. He imagined himself going back into his mother's womb to be born a second time. He wanted to know how this could happen, so he asked Jesus about the how of the new birth. Nicodemus knows that he is in the presence of a mystery, and he wants the answers. There is no doubt that the new birth is a mysterious thing. None of us truly understands everything there is to know about it. It is still a mystery, even to those of us who have experienced it. However, don't let the fact that it is a mystery 
to cause you to avoid it altogether. You don't let the mystery of electricity um, to cause you to sit back in the dark. You don't let the mystery of how a brown cow can eat green grass and give yellow butter and white milk to stop you enjoying eating butter and milk and ice cream. So there are many things that we do not understand in life, but we still believe in them. So we do not allow the mystery of the new birth to keep from being saved. So notice how Jesus addresses this mystery for Nicodemus. Moving on to verse um, <clears throat> 4 to 7. He compares it to a, to a birth. Physical birth is a mystery. Even doctors who specialize in that field know that human birth is a marvelous mystery that no one can fully explain. When Jesus says, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God, he is talking about physical birth and a spiritual birth. He is telling us that for a man to get into heaven, he must have two birthdays. There must be a day when he was born into the kingdom of men, and there must be a day when he was born into the kingdom of God. There are a few ways that physical birth can be used to illustrate this, the spiritual birth. Physical birth provides life. A baby's, um, babies have life because they are born. Likewise, spiritual birth provides a person with spiritual life. In 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. Physical birth only happens once. Physically speaking, it can only be born one time. Spiritually, the same thing is true. The spiritual birth is a one-time-for-all-time experience. It cannot be undone. It cannot be repeated. Physical birth takes place because of the suffering on another. A mother enters the very jaws of death to bring life into this world. Jesus entered the cruel jaws of death so that you might be born again. The new birth rests squarely upon the pain and suffering of another. Physical birth gives the infant a brand new start. No baby is born without a past. With a past. They have no past, only a future. So it is with the new birth. When you get saved, you get a brand new start. Your past is wiped away, and a new, clean future lies, um, lies in front of you. In verse 8, Jesus compares it to a breeze. Jesus tells Nicodemus that the wind can be felt, can be measured, and the fix can be seen. Where it came from, where it went to, remains a mystery. The new birth is the same way. You cannot see God do his work in a heart, but you can see the effects of the wind in the spirit, of the Spirit in a life. When you see a drunkard leave his bottle, you know that God has been working. When you see a wicked, hateful man turn to, into a sweet, loving, holy saint, you know that the wind of the Spirit has been blowing in his soul. It is a mystery because we do not see it happen, but there is no denying that the effects of the power of God when he works in the human heart. Verse 9, when Nicodemus hears these things, he wants to know how this is possible. Jesus takes the next, first, next few verses to explain to him and to us the new birth, how the new birth become a reality. In verse 13, the role of the Savior. Jesus tells Nicodemus that the Savior's part in the new birth was to leave heaven above, to come into the world to die for sin. He left heaven took him upon himself a human body, lived without sin, and died a horrible, awful death upon the cross. 
Let's read from a, a couple of um, verses. Philippians 2.8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And in Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And the very famous passage in Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison, from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put himself to grief. And you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge his righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities." Therefore I will divide him a portion of the great, and, they shall, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he is numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So this, um, this prophecy, you know, um, many, many hundreds of years before Jesus was born, was explaining why the Messiah was going to come in the future, and the purpose of his life. So returning again to John chapter 3, um, going down to verse 14. Jesus reminded Nicodemus of the time Israel sinned, and God sent serpents in among them to bite them. As they did, many people in Israel died. And this is from Numbers 21, 49. So I'll just read out um, those few verses. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around to the land of Edom. And the soul of the people came very discouraged in the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take the serpents from us. 
So Moses prayed to the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when that person looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So when that tragic event took place, God commanded Moses to make a brass snake and put it on the pole. The Jews themselves say this was not the sight of the brazen serpent that cured, but in looking up to it. They looked up to God as the Lord who healed them. And as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whosoever believed in him should not perish. And Jesus said that was, he was like that bronze serpent. He came into this world to be put on a cross. He came to die a sacrifice for sin. In John 3, verse 15, the role of the sinner. What must the lost, hell-bound sinner do to be saved? And the answer is right here in this verse. And there's one word answer, believe. Just like these people in ancient Israel who'd been bitten by the fiery serpents, all they had to do was look and live. If you need to be saved, there's nothing for you to do but to believe in Jesus and receive his finished work at Calvary as the payment for your sins. And reading from Romans 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has risen him from the dead, you will be saved. For, you, for there is nothing to do. He did it all. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So Nicodemus came and he heard the gospel. Did Nicodemus ever get saved? I think he did. And why? Because Nicodemus was there further on um, in the Gospels. Nicodemus stood up for Jesus at the Sanhedrin in John 7. And Nicodemus, um, he was the one that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, and said to them, Does our Lord judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? So Nicodemus was there uh, at that time. And also, um, when Joseph Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, um, asked that Pilate that he could take his, the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. And it was um, Nicodemus, um, who at first came to Jesus' night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes um, for um, Christ's um, preparation of the body. So what does the phrase, you must be born again, mean? This phrase literally means to be born from above. And Peter, 1 Peter 1.23 speaks of a new birth, having been born again, not of corruptible seeds, but of incorruptible, through the word of God which lives and abides forever. To be born again carries the idea of a fresh start, a new life from heaven. We call this experience being saved or born again. And in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And a very important word that's been used here in, in Titus. Titus uses the term regeneration. This means exactly the same thing. It means that when you are regenerated, you get a new life. You get a new start. So many people are looking for reformation. They are trying to turn over a new leaf or trying to get a new lease on life. But the word here is not 
um, reformation, it's regeneration. Reformation is just whitewashing, but regeneration will wash you white. Reformation will put new clothes on a man, but regeneration will put a new man in his clothes. What the world needs is regeneration. You see, if you've only been born once, then you're going to die twice. But if you've been born twice, you will never die because death has been swallowed up in life. In John 3, verse 3, um, when Jesus talks about the new birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Notice what kind of place heaven is. It is the kingdom of God. Do we understand what he's saying here? It has been said that heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. One of the most precious benefits of the new birth is the fact that we receive a new nature when we are saved. When you get saved, you receive God's nature, a nature from heaven. The new birth prepares you for a, a life in a new kingdom. The only way for you to get to heaven is first for you to get heaven into you. I'll just share with you a, a three um, testimonies of people you, you may have heard about. First one is Nicky Cruz, famous from The Cross and the Switchblade, um, the book and the, the film many of you might remember. So Nicky Cruz first met the preacher, David Wilkinson, on the streets of New York in the 1950s. David Wilkinson was the skinny preacher who walked a message of Jesus' love into a gang-owned neighborhoods that even the police were afraid to enter and faced. These, were, these gangs were um, very violent and people avoided them at all costs. And Nicky Cruz, um, who back then was the leader of the Mormors gang of Brooklyn. But this skinny preacher, um, full of courage, um, made his missionary to talk to these gangs in, in New York. And when he met Nicky Cruz, um, he heard, uh, Nicky heard his voice, God has the power to change your life. So Nicky said, he um, started cursing, and I spat in his face, and I hit him. I told him, I don't believe in what you say. You get out of here. <clears throat> so he never expected what the skinny preacher turned around and said to Nicky Cruz next. Wilkinson replied, you could cut me up into a thousand pieces and lay them in the street. Every piece will still love you. And Nicky says, it did damage. Good damage in my brain and my heart. I began to question and for two weeks, I could not sleep thinking about this love. Then Nicky and his gang started to show up at Wilkinson's rallies. One by one, they gave their lives to Christ. It was a crucifixion, Christ's death on the cross, that particularly grabbed Nicky Cruz. And as Nicky Cruz relates, I was choked up with pain. My eyes were fighting and my tears came down. And more tears and I was fighting. And then I surrendered. I let Jesus hug me. I let my head rest on his chest. I said, I'm sorry, forgive me. And for the first time, I told someone, I love you. The love Nicky got in return radically changed his life. When I'd opened my eyes, I got a new heart. I'd been born again. I'm a child of God. The second testimony is from Stan Telchin, um, who wrote the book Betrayed. And this book is a fascinating and inspirational story how this Jewish man, Stan, and his wife, Ethel, who was also Jewish, discovered that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And it all started when um, 
Stan Talchin answered a telephone call from his daughter Judy one day, and he received the worst possible message that a Jewish father could possibly hear from his beloved daughter. The words that revealed that she had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So Stan Talchin's daughter Judy came to believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and she was 21 years old. But her father was the pillar of the Jewish community and had served on the boards of many Jewish organizations. His first response to his daughter's announcement of his, her new faith was a feeling of utter betrayal. But love for his daughter prompted him to hear her as best as he could. So he decided to calmly, methodically gather all the evidence um, to prove to her that she had been deceived. So Stan um, spent hours and hours studying um, to, to try and convince that the Bible and Jesus was a deception. And um, the full story is obviously told in the book. And he goes right, right, right into these Jewish um, roots, his faith, trying to understand these questions. So Stan asked himself a number of questions that he says, I'm going to find these particular answers um, such as, can a Jew accept Jesus as the Messiah and remain a Jew? And five other basic questions form the basis of his inquiries. Number one, do I believe that God really exists? Number two, do I believe that the Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, is the divinely inspired word of God? Number three, does this Bible prophecy, uh, prophesy about a coming Messiah? Is Jesus the Messiah? And if he is, what does that do to me? So Stan, despite being the ultimate critic and with such a heartfelt agenda to restore his Jewish daughter um, back to um, Judaism, finds too that he can only arrive at one decision. And that's all the scriptures and all the prophecies can only prove one thing. Jesus is in fact who he says he is, the Messiah. Stan's dodged a dogged uh, determination for the truth led him to the same conclusion as his daughter, and he too became a born-again believer. And the last um, testimony is closer to home, Helen Shapiro. Um, so I'll just read out from her, um, from her own words. I was raised in a warm, musical, traditional Jewish family in the heart of a large Jewish community in Hackney, in the east end of London, at 14, while still at school, I had my first hit record. That led me into show business, traveling the world, singing at, main, at many famous venues and having more hit songs, including Walking Back to Happiness. I was carried along by all the fame, meeting celebrities and royalty, and didn't give much thought to spiritual things until the late 60s. At that time, it seemed that everyone was searching for the meaning of life. It was the hippie era. Thankfully, I did not get involved in drugs or cults. However, members of my family had taken to visiting mediums, clairvoyants, and other such folk to make contact, as they thought, with relatives who had died. Having always had a curiosity with life-after-death issues, this fascinated me. I began to visit such people myself on occasion. I also started to read books and magazines about spiritualism, Buddhism, and all kinds of psychedelic um, phenomena, I developed a system of beliefs over the years which incorporated a bit of this, a bit of that, a smorgasbord of isms, which these days would probably be put under the label New Age. 
To my own way of thinking, I was not remotely involved in anything evil or sinister. I associated everything I believed in with God. For quite a number of years, I was confronted by what I had discovered. It seemed to fill a void in my life until I turned 40. A few months after this milestone birthday, I woke up one morning, and to my own great surprise, I found I no longer believed in any of my new age ideas. It's hard to explain, but my belief in the supernatural had vanished overnight. Try as I might, I could not believe in any of my isms anymore. This presented a dilemma for me, for I'd always equated all my beliefs with God. Did this mean that there was no God? I found the whole thing very depressing. For the first time in my life, I had nothing to believe in. My jazz, my pop career was going well. I was in a relationship with a man who's now my husband. I was successful, but inside I was empty. Looking back, I can see that this was God's hand. And in those days, my musical director was a name called Bob Cranham. He was a Christian, and more than once he has spoken of what his Lord had done in his life. These were wonderful things, but I couldn't consider them for myself because I'm Jewish. This was the Gentile God blessing his people. In the midst of my turmoil, I called in his house one day to pick up some music. Now, neither Bob nor his wife knew anything of my inner struggle. Nobody did. Then Bob dropped a bombshell that day. He said, I'm thinking of giving up the music business. I asked him why. He says, because I believe God wants me to be a preacher. I thought to myself, oh dear, he thinks he's hearing from God. He was a professional, sane and sensible, top quality musician, composer, songwriter, producer, and now he's talking about giving up everything. Nothing I could say could sway him. He seemed so calm and so sure and so willing to take this drastic step, if, as he believed, God wanted it. I found myself becoming more and more impressed by how real and sincere his faith must be if he could surrender all for his Lord. I went home and I told my boyfriend John how much I envied Bob. I had many opinions, but Bob had real convictions. I wanted what he had. I guess I was provoked to jealousy. I started to think about this Jesus constantly. I couldn't get him out of my mind. Finally, I lay awake one night and felt I had nothing to lose. I whispered, Jesus. I didn't know I was going to be struck by lightning. Are you really there? Are you really the Messiah? If you are, I want to know. Please show me. Nothing seemed to have happened in my room that night, but in the weeks that followed, it seemed that everywhere I went, I was bumping into things and people connected with Jesus. While this was going on, my band and I came back from doing a concert in Germany. When we arrived at the airport, we were saying our farewells until the next gig. Bob handed me a book. I was surprised to see the cover was the picture of the menorah, the seven-branched lampstand, and the title of the book was Betrayed, written by Stan Telchin. And the subtitle, in effect, said, How would you feel as a successful 50-year-old Jewish businessman if your daughter one day told you she had believed in Jesus? How did Bob know what I was searching for? I thought to myself, of course he didn't know. Nobody knew. And then she read this book, Betrayed, and the book was a total shock to her. I'd heard about the odd Jewish people believing in Jesus, but I dismissed them as weirdos and cranks. Here was a book by a normal, successful Jewish businessman who believed in Jesus, and I couldn't ignore it. Ultimately, I showed no emotion. Okay, I'll read it, I said casually, 
but my heart was thumping inside. I couldn't wait to read it. I found out later that Bob had wanted to give me that book for over a year, but the time had never seemed right until now. How timely that book was. I learned a great deal from reading that book. Most fascinating of all were the Messianic prophecies, like the one um, I read out from um, Isaiah 53. These are the prophecies about the Messiah which are found in the New Testament, the Tenach. I'd never heard of them before. Now I learned that in the law, the prophets and the writings, there were dozens of specific predictions about a coming Messiah. I had known and loved the hit stories in the Old Testament about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, Daniel, etc. I knew what we, the Jewish people, had been promised, the Messiah, but I never knew about these many specifically written prophecies. Finally, I came face to face with Isaiah 53, the whole of which chapter speaks about one who is to come and to take himself our sins and punishment. He is wounded for our trans transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we are like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all. It seemed to be speaking about Jesus. I took it home. I opened up the Old Testament, and there they were, prophecies about the Messiah, dozens of them, speaking of him coming both as a suffering servant and a victorious king. They all pointed, it seemed to me, to Jesus. Could this really be true? I've come this far. I couldn't back down now. I had to go on. With trepidation, I opened for the first time in my life the forbidden book, the New Testament. And imagine to my surprise when I opened up the New Testament and I was greeted by the most Jewish thing I'd seen outside of the Old Testament the genealogy of Jesus. Not only was I unexpectedly greeted by a list of familiar names, but reading stand books, I learned that the Messiah had to be descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He had to be from the tribe of Judah, of the royal house of David. And that was just for starters. All these names were there, and many, many more, in this impeccable lineage of Jesus. I continued reading the New Testament. By that time, I'd read all four Gospels, I knew that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. Jesus was and is the Messiah. This was the most wonderful realization. But what to do? This was controversial. I then telephoned Bob and he said, and said to him, I think I'm on the verge of becoming a believer. He and his wife asked me over. I had so many questions. I told Bob and his wife that I believed in Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of uh, God the Son. I believe that he died on the cross. He was buried and rose from the dead on the third day. I believed, and I still needed to understand why. And they showed me in the Bible, particularly in the letter to the Hebrews, how Jesus' fulfillment of the sacrificial system instituted by God when he brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Whenever God's law was broken, he graciously provided that atonement could be made by shedding of the blood of an innocent substitute. We have all... Jews and Gentiles have broken God's law, and we are under his condemnation, and we are deserving of his punishment. He requires the shedding of blood. None of our good works or religious rituals um, can make us right with God. So Bob and his wife explained that I needed to repent, to turn back from my sin back to God. I learned that I was a sinner. We are all sinners. Bob asked me if I'd like to respond by praying and asking God to forgive me on the basis of what Jesus has done. Only he can forgive me, and only the blood of Jesus can atone for me. I could then commit my life to him as Lord and Savior. 
So this I joyfully did on August the 26th, 1987. Even though there were no thunderbolts or flashes of lightning, I knew my prayer had been answered. I can't explain how I knew. I just did. It was so real and so true. So there's um, three testimonies um, of people that had um, received salvation um, from Christ. So it's vital that we come to a true and biblical experience of salvation according to the scriptures. There are many churches today that take away from the Bible, denying fundamental teachings of creation, the miracles of God in the Old and New Testaments, the virgin birth of Lord Jesus, his sinner's life and death as an atonement for sin, and his resurrection and ascension into heaven and the hope of his second coming. Those who believe these teachings may well end up falling away because they have been given no real basis for believing in him. There are also preachers who add to the Bible, promising people miracles, healing of every sickness, prosperity if they give to their ministries, and a worldwide revival in which all nations will be converted to Christ before his return. They cannot actually deliver on any of these things, so those who are attracted to the faith by these promises may well fall away when they do not get healed, or remain poor, or see the world go from bad to worse as the nations continue to follow Satan rather than Jesus Christ. Reading from Romans 10, 9-10. That you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that, Christ, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Jesus for good works, which Lord prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All of these issues are foundational to what salvation is. If people who claim to be Christians have not believed in these fundamental issues relating to salvation, we should not be surprised if they later fall away from the faith. It may not be that they've lost their faith, but they never had the saving faith in the first place. And I'll just, um, in, in closing, um, I'd like to spend a bit of a uh, few minutes just reflecting on some of the lives of the Christian martyrs. And starting with the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen was run out of the city and stoned for his witness. Stephen, full of grace and fortitude, to the very end, met the greatest test without flinching, praying the Lord to receive his spirit and not to lay this sin against the people. So perished the first martyr, the dying breath spent in prayer for those who killed him. Stephen did not die because he had been seeking to turn over a new leaf. In his life, he had regeneration. Polycarp. Polycarp was arrested on the charge of being a Christian. Amidst an angry mob, the Roman proconsul took pity on such a gentle old man and urged Polycarp to proclaim, Caesar is Lord. If only Polycarp would make this declaration and offer a small pinch of incense to Caesar's statue, he would be spared. To this, Polycarp responded, 86 years I've served Christ, and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Steadfast in his stand for Christ, Polycarp refused to compromise his beliefs and thus was burned alive at the stake. Polycarp did not die this way because he had been seeking a new lease on life. In his life, he had been saved. William Tyndale. Tyndale was arrested and imprisoned and was tried for heresy and treason. Tyndale was then strangled and burnt at the stake in the prison yard. His last words were, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. This prayer was answered three years later with the publication of King Henry VIII's English Great Bible. 
William Tyndale did not die this way because he had received reformation. In his life, he had been born again, and with that, eternal life in God. And just reading a, a few verses from John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So now is the day to repent and believe in the good news that Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, and the Lord, who died for our sins and rose from the dead. So in closing, I'd just like to read out the salvation prayer, um, the many variations, but this is just the short, short, simple prayer that can be used by those that are genuinely wanting to receive eternal um, salvation. Dear Heavenly Father, I admit that I am a sinner and need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus, the Messiah, died in my place, shedding his blood to pay for my sins, and that he arose again from the dead to give me eternal life. I'm willing right now to turn from my sin and accept Jesus, the Messiah, as my personal Savior and Lord. I commit my life to you and ask to send you to send the Holy Spirit into my life to fill me and to take control and to help me become the kind of person you want me to, to be. Thank you, Father, for loving me. In Jesus' name, amen.